Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to episode 48 of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. In this episode, we take a look at Kentucky basketball from a different perspective, from the training table. Walt McCombs was the longtime trainer for the University of Kentucky men's basketball team, dating back to Coach Rupp's final year as head coach. Walt McCombs was a graduate of the Citadel, and we'll hear how he ended up in Lexington. Walt shares with us some of Coach Rupp's unique philosophies when it came to playing defense, and they make sense. You don't think Kentucky fans never stormed the court after a big victory? It happened, and so did Coach Joby Hall's conditioning program. Oscar and Walt will share some good stories, and Walt will describe some of the injuries that he encountered. Before players were throwing up the three goggles, the Skywalker had his own pair. Walt takes us through his time at UK, starting with Coach Rupp and ending with Coach Rick Pitino. It's a career over 18 years that saw four head coaches, one national championship, legendary players, and miles and miles of athletic trainer tape. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's, and his guest, Walt McCombs. Walt, you're in your first full year of retirement from UKAA. How many years were you over there? Uh, I was a GA in 71, and then I worked uh, for whatever cause they were paying me to go to school to uh, just work full-time, and uh, I got offered a job in 73 to Clemson, so I left there, and I got a call back from uh, Cliff, asked me if I wanted to come back Kentucky, and I came back in August of 76. So you be- began a roughly 40-year career, give or take some some years in there. Basketball from the early stages up until 92, then you moved over to the Olympic sports and went to work with men's soccer, and then retired in February. Yes, sir. Let, let, let's go back a little bit. Uh, growing up, you're a South Carolina kid, right? Yes, sir. What was it like? Well, we lived on a mill hill. And, uh, of course, the only two schools we really heard about was uh, South Carolina and Clemson. And we lived uh, about 30 miles from Clemson. And when I was a kid, if you wore your football jersey when you was playing or sometimes they had Boy Scout, they, they'd let you in for a dime and you could go sit up on the hill. And that's changed a lot now. <laughs> How did you become interested in becoming a trainer as a profession? Uh, I went to Citadel, and I was going to be a, a student manager for football. And uh, that way we would get out of all the parades and a lot of stuff and wouldn't have to eat on regular mess hall. And I started doing that, and uh, old boxing coach Billy Bostick 
he get, pulled me over to the side one day. He said, hey, would you like to come over and be a trainer? And I said, well, I started thinking about it. Well, almost got killed one time trying to pick up a football when players were diving on it. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, I just think I watch it from the sidelines. And I always thought about doing something in medicine, but being a doctor was out of the picture for me. And got into athletic training. I really enjoyed it. And my other option was teach physical education or something like that. But I, I, I've been blessed all the way around. How were you attracted to Kentucky? How did you end up here? Well, the head trainer at Siddle of the Cane Man my sophomore year, uh, he was from Florida State, Roy Don Wilson. He got a call from John Ray when he got the football job at Kentucky. So Roy Don got up here and he says, uh, graduate and I'll get you up there UK with me and you worked for me for a while. So you came up here actually still during the Adolph Rupp era? Uh, yes, sir. Adolph's last year. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Adolph. What do you remember? He was always good to me. I mean, even though sometimes he would not exactly remember my name, <laughs> but that, that was okay. Really. He would sometimes call me trainer and stuff like that. And uh, Well, you know, with with players, he had a history of calling them by their yeah. hometown. Yeah. Like Harrodsburg for yeah. Terry Mobley. Yeah, yeah. So he couldn't remember South Carolina, I guess. Well, he did. Uh, I think it was a year, one of the years, yeah, my, the year I was up here, either after the season or something, Adolf went to speak at the Ipte Club down at Clemson, and my dad went to see him and. uh Tell us what the Ipte Club is real quickly. It started off as I pay two a year. It was the fundraiser for primarily football, I think, back then, but it, it's gone up to 20, and it's thousands now. Yes. But, yeah, that's how the you usually get, sort of like here, you get season tickets so long you get, you know, your seats moved or something like that. But, yeah, I was blessed to be at Clemson for three years. So, Adolph, uh, you got to tell us a couple of Adolph stories. I know you've got a bunch of them. Uh, Ronnie Lyons story. Ronnie Lyons. Well, we were, well, unfortunately it was Adolph's last game up in Dayton. Up in Dayton. We were playing Florida State, and uh, Coach Rupp giving his pregame talk and of course, we never went out until the national anthem was sang. And so, right after his speech, but I'll backpedal here in a second, he asked, uh, has the national anthem been played? One of the managers said, well, they're playing it now. He says, 16 damn managers, and nobody knows what the hell's going on. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to Ronnie, Ronnie, uh, Adolph told him, don't go shopping. Don't go shopping. And what I figured it means just don't try to make something happen when you can't make it happen with your quickness and stuff. And uh, Larry Stamper, he was there, and Adolph looked at him as giving assignments to, diff to the guys and says, uh, Larry, you won't have any trouble remembering who you guarding tonight. Because he's the ugliest SOB I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about 
your first year here as it relates to what the mood of the community was with this being the last year of Adolph Rupp. There was some controversy about where he should be forced into retirement or not. How did the club take that and the fans around it that you were involved with? Well, actually, uh, it was sort of like a taffy pull. A lot of people wanted Adolph to stay, but they had a 70-year-old retirement uh, deal going on, and so he had to retire. And a lot of people were, of course, with Coach Hall, and uh, I just kept my mouth shut. (laughs) I I I was on both of them sides, so I just kept a low profile, which I try to do all the time. And uh, I don't think uh, the university could have got a better person to replace Adolph and Joe B. And I don't think people really appreciated what he did until he wasn't coaching anymore. I mean, how many legends have been replaced by somebody that kept it at the same level or moved it up to another level? So after Coach Rupp had retired, you spent the first year with Joe. Yes, sir. Uh, A lot of fans around here, the modern-day fans, like to boast that UK fans have never stormed the court after a win, mostly because most of the people around here never saw a game in Memorial Coliseum, I guess. And at Rupp Arena, you've got barriers where you can't get down. But they did storm the court. One time, Joe B. Hall's first year, last game of the season in the SEC championship on the line against Tennessee. Yep, yep. It's uh, Well, you know, I think uh, just the way basketball has been here at Kentucky, you know, you win so many big games, but, you know, a lot of the players, some of the coaches, not as much to do about nothing. We just won. We got a game next week. So we need to get on that. And, uh, you know, think about rushing the floor and all that stuff. It's exciting. But I think sometimes it gives the players a false security that thinking the next time they're going to do the same thing to the whoever they play next. You, you, you then left Kentucky for three or four years. What was your thought process when you were gone from Kentucky after those two youth, uh, three years there? as a graduate assistant, was your thought then to come back to Kentucky later or did it just happen? Well, during the, after I left, they hired a full-time trainer, Bobby Barton, who had his master's degree in physiology, science of physiology or whatever. So he was groomed to be a, a teacher, a professor. So. Eastern Kentucky's uh, position came open because they had an athletic program, which UK did not have at that time. Bobby went over there and used his skills. And uh, I, Cliff Hagen called me and asked me if I'd like to come back. And I said, sure. I mean, I guess I become, became addicted to UK basketball. But I worked basketball at Clemson, worked football. And uh, I love Clemson, but once I got up here, uh, the seed was planted here, and that's where I wanted to be. And I was, was blessed to be brought back and certainly blessed to uh, last this long. Let's go through the years here at Kentucky 
Uh, you came back in 76. Uh, was that in the summer, 76? or It was in August. August. Right before uh, football started. And that was the beginning of probably the highlight of Joe B. Hall's career here, back-to-back years, 77 in the lead eight against Carolina, then 78 they won the championship. What do you remember most about those two years? Well, I, one thing I'd like to give Coach Hall credit for, which a lot of people don't know have knowledge of, he put in the conditioning program, you know, his first year, and they, they cleaned out some closet over in Coliseum and got one of those universal gyms that have about five different stations. <laughs> and that's what they did, and they, they ran. We used to have to run uh, 220s and stuff at the track, and uh, one uh, preseason, Mike Phillips was having issues of making his time. So Coach Hall, I don't know if he was there or strength coach, but they said, you're going to stay out here. Till was it you Pat Etcheberry? Was he still yeah. here then? Yeah, but they said, you're going to stay out here and run until you make them. Mike turned around and said, you can run me long, but you can't run me hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in those days, uh, how difficult was it to get a player healthy from a, a sprained ankle as compared to today? Your minor injuries that you dealt with yeah, on a yeah. daily basis. Well, you know, normally if they have a lot of pain, swelling to begin with, if we get have a ch- opportunity, we'll get a bench, eventually an X-ray, and if that's good to go, and just start rehab on them. And you know as well as I know, some kids are tougher than others. Some respond to injuries uh, better than others, and some of them actually show up on time for treatments, whatever time that is. And uh, but now you got uh, MRIs. You know, the doctors are the high ankle sprains, which we never knew what that was back in the day, but the high ankle sprains sometimes take you a month to get over that. So we just, I'd just tape them up and they'd go at it. Have you always taped players' ankles before practice, or was there a certain period of time in the 50s, 60s, 70s you started doing that? Well, they, when I got to sit a little, you know, back then, just people that had a history of sprains or weak ankles would get taped. But uh, now the, it's, I mean, just about, I'd say over 50% or more people get taped now. Some just for prevention and some of them out of habit and some of them, I think, just want to come in the train room and hang out and go through the rituals for the game or, or the practice, and, you know, taping's been around a long time. Let, let's go back to that 77 season. You you got uh, first year of Rupp Arena yep. that you'd moved into it. I guess you thought you'd died and gone to heaven with the facilities down there as compared with the facilities at the old Coliseum. Oh, of course. It, uh, you know, any time you have more space, and more modalities to work with and enough hot and cold tubs. It uh, really makes a trainer's life a lot easier and also the player's life, which is the main thing you want to do is 
give them a perfect situation to have success, and that's you know what we always tried to do. The number one rivalry at that time, and had been for many years, was Kentucky and Tennessee. And in that particular year, the regional was going to be played at Rupp Arena. And whoever won the conference is going to get to play in Rupp Arena for that regional if they advanced yeah. to that stage. And uh, Kentucky lost both games that year. Lost both in Knoxville and in Lexington. Thereby, Kentucky had to go on the road, which led them first to Philadelphia and then on to play in the East Regional over in College Park. Um what were your thoughts about the facilities and going in and playing that first game in Philadelphia in the old Palestra? That that had to be some some kind of a training room there. Well, they might have had one table and uh, one whirlpool, but uh, I've taped on tables, I've taped on airplanes, I've taped on buses, I've taped on motel room beds and dinner tables and all that sort of thing. What's the oddest thing you ever taped up? Uh, well, probably the oddest thing you have to deal with. Sometimes people have jam toes or stuff like that. It's just you know trying to get the tape pulled the right way and the right amount of padding or whatever they need. Just just stay there and you know give the players a little confidence. Well, this is going to work, so plant that seed, let them start thinking about it, and then if they go out and they still have issues with it, we'll adjust it if we can, and if we can't, we just say, you're done, practice is over. Uh, In 77, Kentucky lost in lead eight to North Carolina at a time that you still had the four corners and no shot clock. Oh, my God. What do you remember most about that weekend and the trip to the White House? Yeah. North Carolina game, what was their little guard, didn't they just dislocate or, or had an elbow in? Phil Chris, Ford. Phil Ford, Phil yeah. Ford yes. Yeah, he was a headache. I mean, the four corners was not much fun to watch, as you know. And thank God they did away with that role because uh, Clemson and South Carolina used to play or North Carolina score would be eight to five or something like that, something ridiculous. Sometimes single digits, sometimes it crashed it double digits but uh yeah i <laughs> i can't see uh it'd probably be interesting if some teams had to play in, against the four corners just see what the heck it was like in addition to to that run inning in college park uh the next year you're going to win the title but the year before you had a young guard who had transferred to kentucky from purdue who set out how was he in working with him and what did you see him, how he handled that year of Richard, where he practiced every day but could not play? Well, Kyle is a special person, special athlete. And uh, his dad was a coach. And I knew Kyle probably felt, you know, I'd like to be out there playing. But if this is what I got to do to play at Kentucky, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, he... I never saw him angry at anybody, but he'd get angry on the floor, and that's a good place to be angry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's a special guy, and he always trusted me, and I appreciate all the guys and 
you know, especially those guys that make an effort if you do something for you to say thank you. And that means a lot. Tell me what you most remember about the 78 season, uh, the highs, the lows, a lot of pressure from the very beginning of that season. Uh, did, did that ever filter down to you where you felt pressure as much as maybe the coaches and the players to your part of the program? Well, yeah, I think everybody's far, fair game when you, when you get in that situation. But uh, anyway, you know, they spread it around. If they spread around on me, that's fine. I went to military school, and I just had three answers. Yes, sir, no, sir, and no excuse, sir. And that's what I use with Coach Hall, you know, I, and, and everybody. I, I don't try to backpedal or sidestep anything that I may have done wrong or anything I could have done better when I get questioned. You win a title in St. Louis. Uh, you beat Duke. And you come back and you're going through a completely rebuilding stage. And it's the first year that they reinstitute the SEC tournament. They give the top two teams buys into the semifinals. And Kentucky, if they win it, they got to play four games in four days. And they do play four games in four days. They ultimately lose it. But in the game, I believe, against Alabama, Dwight Anderson broke his arm. Tell me what you remember about that. Well, a lot of those injuries I try to put in the back part of my mind because some of them you, you see and you think, my God, got to get this guy some help. But uh, we had good help down there that uh, took care of him. And uh, that's the way all the trainers I've ever worked with from visiting team or being a visitor they always helpful and usually have a doctor on hand if you don't want have have one available and back then few of them had an ambulance on site which most of them do now which <laughs> i think that's a standard deal now but yeah did you ever have a situation where the visiting team didn't have proper preparations for an injury like that uh I can't. I can't remember that I did have anybody that would wasn't. I mean, at Tennessee, we used to have that old couple sit behind our bench in those uh, red vests and little hat on top of the head. They they were like the visiting host person, and they would sit back there. And if you ever need anything, they would help you out with it or go get it for you. So, seventy nine season. You end up losing to Tennessee, I think, in the championship game. You come home, and of all people, you you get invited to NIT, and you hold the fir- host the first round, and lo and behold, you lose to Clemson. Yep. <laughs> That's another one I don't want to think about. <laughs> uh, following year, you have the great recruiting class coming in. Ord, Hurt, Minifield, Heights, Sam Bowie. Uh, great first year, uh, lose to Duke at Rupp Arena, I think in the, uh, Sweet 16 or Elite 8, and, uh, but it's a fun year, uh, started out with Duke, ended with Duke, but you could really see this was going to be a club to really play well, 
Second year Boo was here, they get upset in the first round. And then his third year, he goes through two terrible years. Tell me a little bit about when you first detected that Bowie had, the, I think it was first diagnosed as a high ankle sprain? Uh, well, it was more or less on his shin. And uh, we treated it as protocol would say. And then I eventually, you know, uh, like stress fractures, when you first have one, sometimes they won't show up on the x-ray. But after, once a little calcium gets filling in, you can tell if you have a fracture or not. So anyway, uh, Coach Hall called all around trying to find out the best uh, authority and physician, and we went to uh, went to Memphis, Dr. Calandrusio. And uh, he's the one that did the graph on Sam Shin. And no one really dreamed he was going to be up more than the one year. No. And then the second year comes up, and you're really up into almost early October before suddenly you realize, uh-uh, not going to happen this year. Yeah, I Sam had a rough go. I mean, who wouldn't have a rough go of having to sit out with an injury for that long and not knowing if uh, you're going to get back to where you were before? And uh, he had a lot of patience, and I'm sure there are a lot of people praying for him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he came back, and we had good how, how difficult was it to give him – not how difficult was it to give him support, but how difficult was it for Sam to keep a – proper frame of mind and just not give up and how did the other players and the coaches sort of could maybe sense hey he needs a pep talk today well you know I, he had a <clears throat> he had a cast on from his toes to his hip for a long time and had a bone growth stimulator he had, he'd had to plug that thing in every day and set so many hours under that to uh you know to get his treatment in but you know he he would come to practice a lot and get up there and when he could put a little weight on it do a little shooting and uh always kidding joking having a good time with players and i i think uh just being around the players and them keeping him involved and the coaches keeping him involved as much as he could be with uh, practices and, you know, going home games and sitting on the bench and taking care of his academic uh, needs. And, uh, yeah, he, he just had a good personality for that. I mean, I I don't think he was ever bitter for I never did hear him say, why me, or anything like that. I just thought that he uh, – had uh, a lot of patience, and I think he knew the man upstairs would take care of him eventually. Throughout your career, I mean, every college team has injuries, multiple injuries in a season. Some are not as significant as others, but uh, four or five guys here, and we've mentioned uh, three of them already, and I go through. Uh, Dickie Bill, he had a knee problem, if I remember right. Yeah, he had a... He had a knee problem. We thought it was a knee problem. Then uh, Dr. Gumbert, one of our team physicians here, 
looked at it and thought he just had a, a baker's cyst behind his knee. So uh, we took care of that. And it took Dickie a little time to come back from that, and he eventually made it, and that's because of all the hard work he wanted to put in to get back on the floor. And that was a, a huge key to that 84 team making it to the Final Four. It was that last two months that he started coming back yeah. after that injury and led them to the Final Four up in Seattle. Yep. Kenny Walker, the original, I guess, eye goggles man. I think that would have been March of 85, yeah. Denver, Colorado, St. John's, Sweet 16. Somebody jammed him in the eye. Chris Mullins, our <laughs> <laughs> top player. Yeah, he got he got poked in the eye, and uh, we had to get him back here to get him checked out. And uh, I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was wearing those kind of glasses now, but uh, – Went to Tender Crowd Standard. They ordered her some. They had somebody put put his number on each side. And, uh, a lot of times with those glasses, if you're wearing that much plastic around your eyes, when you're sweating stuff, they can fog up a little bit. But uh, I think my sister, she lives in Georgia. I gave her a pair of that extra pair of glasses uh, that I had left over from Kenny Walker. I guess she still got them. The... Uh that was the end of the Joe B. Hall era. In fact, that game was his last game, and you moved into the Eddie Sutton era. What do you remember about the the last days of Joe B. and the week or so that everybody was tossing out every name you could think of, and you ended up with Eddie Sutton? What do you remember about that? Well, I, I wasn't in the loop, I guess, to hear the candidates' names out there. But uh, uh, and Cliff named uh, Eddie Sutton our coach. I went went to. We didn't have all the access to the iPhones and stuff like that, so I knew I knew where Kitely's mail route was. <laughs> 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 so fortunately, I kept, caught up with him on at Highland Rose. He had a drop off to do there, and I said, "Hey, you need to get out of here as soon as you can." Get Get off work. They, Eddie Sutton's their new coach, and he's going to be a Wildcat Lodge. <laughs> so, <laughs> Bill wore his mail outfit over there that day for, for the press conference for uh, Eddie Sutton or whatever it was they had over there. But uh, Coach Sutton had his issues. He, uh, like everybody else does, some of us bigger than others, and uh, he was always good to me. He was always good to me. And uh, he had a good heart. He has a good heart. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was – I'm not a basketball expert or anything, but usually if a game got down within two minutes to go, Coach Sutton was a hell of a floor coach. You were speaking of uh, running Bill Kitely down. This is as good a place as any. Was, what was it like to hang around Bill Kitely in the cage – on pretty much a daily basis from early September to April. Well, that might have been the first Pee Wee's Playhouse, Mr. Kitely's uh, cage area, because a lot of fun things went on in there. But, uh, yeah, he he uh, he was a good man. 
He worked his butt off. He got up like four o'clock in the morning to deliver mail so he could get finished with mail, so he could get over to practice. First, he was there part time. George Huckel was the uh, equipment man before him, and he worked for the post office. But Bill would get through with his postal route work practice, and you know when we had freshmen and and varsity practices going on the same day, he put in quite a few hours. How, how difficult was it after Rex came in, I think, Eddie Sutton's uh, third year or second year it was. First year, they get to the lead eight. They've, they've beaten Alabama four times. They've beaten LSU three times. Got to play a fourth time in Atlanta. Get beat. Uh, come back the next year, and Rex comes in, has a huge game against Louisville. And that's when Eddie Sutton made the one famous quote that will live in infamy, and that is calling Louisville little brother. <laughs> little brother. It could have been worse. could have been redheaded stepchild. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, well, Things yeah. were going so well, you thought, at that point in time for yeah. Eddie Sutton. But the demons were still around. Yeah. And you knew it. From before, uh, apparently Eddie is was one of the individuals. It's a disease. Let's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. you know, but he was one of these people that could go for months, and then all of a sudden, boom, and then he'd go for months again, and with everything going so well, and then all of a sudden, just boom again. Well, I I don't know. I I can't never get in the coach Sutton's head, but. You know, I thought maybe he thought the job up here was going to be much easier than where he was because it was a basketball school. And was he overwhelmed about the outside pressures? I would have to make an educated guess, and I would say yes. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, the guy loved to use read newspapers and stuff, and uh, he selects and Herald and all that stuff. Do all the good stuff. I don't know if he ever read a Courier Journal or not, which would be talking a little bit differently about uh, some of his comments. But, uh, yeah, I think anybody in that position would finally feel the pressure. I mean. Just four years into Eddie Sutton, suddenly you're introduced to another coach. Uh, yes, sir. Rick Patino. Rick Patino. And uh, he sort of come out of nowhere in that process. Uh, not very many people had him the day that Eddie was let go, yeah. that he'd be the next guy. But he did come in, and his first two years, there was no, no uh, tournament at all. They were postseason bands for the first two years. What was the early days of? Rick Pitino lot from your point of view. Well, I'd say some of the players that came in, you know, Rick's first years, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, whatever, uh, they were like a deer in headlights because we got a strength coach now that really worked. Rock Oliver, I'm sure you know Rock, and mm -hmm. Rock would totally get the most out of 
anybody and more that he could squeeze out if possible. But, yeah, he he put up through some heavy weights and stuff like that. And I think it took the guys a while to get used to it because, you know, like when Coach Hall got here or back in his day, they didn't think kids should lift weights or anything because they'd throw their shot off. So once that was realized, it didn't throw your shot off, you know, kids started beefing up and getting bigger, faster, and stronger. And uh, practices, I don't think we had a 20-hour rule back then. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, it was ignored. Uh, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, work them hard, and it, it paid off for him. He put his system in. I think they uh, – got sold into it and uh they uh they did what rick asked them to do usually and uh it paid off for everybody the the uh the first two years the first year they i think they had a 500 season and then the second year they had the best record in the sec even though they didn't get a championship ring for it um how to parade down Main Street. Uh, what do you remember most about those unforgettables that particular year? Even though the next year was the year they yeah. would play Duke. Well, you know, I don't have a trained eye for talent, but I don't think we had the talent that some of these other teams that we were going to be playing had. But these guys, a lot of them Kentucky boys, and some up not Kentucky boys, which is nothing wrong with that. But, you know, back then kids knew the history of the program more or less, knew who the, could name all the head coaches since Adolph. And, uh, and they would have – the Kentucky boys would have to go back home if Louisville beat us and listen to that stuff, you know, for all year. And I think uh, – Rock got him in shape. Coach Patino uh, got him on the floor running, shooting three-pointers mo- most of the time after practice. And uh, it, it worked out for everybody. At at the time, Rick was doing a lot of things. And I don't know where it was intentional to get national attention or, or just his thought process on how he wanted to build the program. But he become ingrained in – creating headlines from one way to another. And he went through this period all of a sudden where he was naming a uh, first female assistant coach, uh, first female trainer, first female basketball SID. And you more or less got caught up in that by virtue of your position. Yeah, I mean uh – I was uh, blessed to work with Rick for two years, and then see him call me in his office after my second year and says, uh, Rick wants to, uh, wants to make a change with the trainer. He says, uh, basically, he don't want you anymore. And I said, well, fine. He says, if you want me to stand behind you and go to bat for you, I will. And I said, see uh, him, I'm not getting in a any kind of match with Rick Patino were contests because I, uh, no way I could win that. And he was, uh, he was good enough to 
switched my position over to Olympic sports, mostly uh, soccer all those years, and uh, I'll always appreciate CM taking care of me. How did the change in your day-to-day duties change from leaving that high-visibility basketball program to work? Suddenly you were in a program now that unless something bad happened, nobody knew about anything about it. Well, the the good and the bad thing, I got, got to get outdoors a lot more. <laughs> I don't miss those rainy, cold days out there at all. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, practices were different. Of course, the squad was larger. Uh, we had anywhere from 38, I think. We had one time we had an A team and a B team, which didn't work out so well. But anyway, uh, maybe 26, 28 players at one time and uh yeah it was different for me i i didn't know it. when i worked soccer it's the first soccer game i've ever saw <laughs> <laughs> soccer's uh, a growing sport oh yeah um kentucky just here in the last three or four years has finally started really putting some serious dollars into baseball as we're seeing the new stadium go up i think they actually did it a little bit earlier with softball with their new stadium. Uh, where do you see the future of, of U.K. soccer? Is that going to be the next program that they're going to really develop? Or I think uh, I think we're on our way. I mean, it, everything is work in progress, and sometimes you have great years when you didn't expect it, and sometimes you have some not-so-great years uh and that's to be expected it's it's a matter of recruiting and getting the right kids in here and get them to buy into the uh program and uh i think we're going the right direction in 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 men's soccer looking back to the early 70s of your days when you were on the bench as a trainer what was the most exciting UK basketball game that you were involved with? Well, that to be the national championship game. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it. You know, of course, the word was uh, no celebration. Well, it's all business and all that stuff. We, players had their little fun too. They just didn't, you know, demonstrate it maybe outside the locker room or the training room or Wildcat Lodge, but yeah. But 40 years later, they still got the rings. They still got the rings. Most disappointing loss during those years? Well, I'd say any of them to Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I saw Bill Cotley say amen on that. <laughs> Yeah, I think he gave me a big amen shout-out. The best individual game by a Wildcat? Has to be uh, Goose Givens championship game, 78. 41 points. 41. The best opposing player that you ever saw Kentucky compete against? 
I'd say Shaq. <laughs> Best opposing team Kentucky ever played against. It may be Duke. In 90? 98. 98. Yeah. You traveled a lot with the Wildcats all over the country. What was the one arena you enjoyed going in and watching them play in, other than Kentucky and Louisville? Uh, I'd say that uh, Mississippi State. That little arena they had, all the fans were sitting almost behind you, <laughs> hollering at me and Dr. Jackson. And uh, I like those quaint atmospheres. But, you know, the, the bigger, when they started playing all these big tournaments and these big, big arenas, and, uh, you know, it would be packed and stuff, but it didn't seem as personal to you because you couldn't, Look up in the stands and see who threw a hot dog at you. <laughs> the worst arena you've ever been in for a game. Let's see. Actually, I'd say the same arena in Oxford, the Mississippi State. I mean, <laughs> it it is what it is. But Georgia had a good thing going. They had the uh, – cattle barns or whatever behind the arena and you a lot of times you go in there and it smell like manure but uh yeah that was a nice neat little place to go think about just a second and the most shocking incident that you could remember involving a kentucky basketball team most shocking incident. it could be a player coach game referee That's a good one. You got me stumped on that one. I, nothing really stands out. It. Uh, I mean, I could say Dwayne Casey when he had to get stitches when Coach Sutton was here when he was doing drills and. What got, happened there? He caught an elbow, or something, and uh, he didn't want anybody to know. But his picture was in the Herald later the next day, <laughs> with me holding galls over his eye. Over the years, where have you seen and what arena where UK fans were most visible on the road as far as numbers? Well, a lot of times when we played Ole Miss or Mississippi State, you know, some of those schools are they're more located in the western part of the state. They would just pack with it. You know, we'd have more fans there than they would, and it was unbelievable. And they, you know, they re, they lived to go see a Kentucky game. I mean, that's a lot of people are that have been going to games for years. It's no big deal to them, but some people plan a trip or that's their vacation every year to go watch the Cats play somewhere on the road because they can't get tickets here. The rival coach you most liked throughout your career as just a friend? Uh, well, I can't say Bobby Knight because I don't – he wouldn't know me from Adam, but uh, I would say uh, just some of the 
schools that always took care of us. You know, I like I like Dale Brown, Whip Sanderson, all those, you know, all those coaches that had a lot of colorful, you know, one-liners or something like that. And you know, back then it was okay. Everybody hated everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Walt McCombs in this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. We'll have more with Walt McCombs in episode 49, but for now, there are plenty of episodes of Conversations to hold you over. Go to oscarcombs.com for access to all of the episodes, or you can take Oscar on the road with you. Conversations with Oscar Combs is available both in iTunes and the Google Play Store, and the best thing is, they're free. Search for at Wildcat News and subscribe, and then you will automatically receive episodes to your mobile device every time a new one is released. To keep up with Oscar, follow him on Twitter at Wildcat News. I'm Bo Robinson, thanking you for listening to the latest episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs. And as always, go Big Blue.